0: Start with a question, then think back to a time when you were a child. Uh, did you ever have any of those daydreams where you imagined yourself or desired to be famous in some particular way? Uh, did you ever drift off into the daydreams of achieving some success where you did something so amazing that the world would just have to stand up and applaud you because you're so awesome? Uh, I did. Uh, for me, being a little boy uh, kicking a football about, it was being a footballer. It was uh, particularly scoring a hat trick for Scotland in the World Cup final at Wembley against England and uh, playing so spectacularly that even the England fans got up and just to give me a round of applause, you know, it was clearly a daydream. Uh, what was it for you though? We have these little dreams, don't we, as children? Maybe scientific discovery and the Nobel Prize, or a blockbuster movie and an Oscar, or a chart-topping hit and a Grammy. Well, I think childish daydreams for us reveal a deep-down desire to make a name for ourselves. And actually, when you think about the way that kids are taught sometimes nowadays, it's almost encouraged. Uh, In a local school assembly recently, uh, the head teacher played a song by the script called You Can Be the Greatest. Hands up if you know this song, You Can Be the Greatest. Not many of you. I'm going to have to sing it for you. No, I'm not. Um, This is how it goes. It says, yeah, that's how it starts. Yeah, you can be the greatest. You can be the best. You can be the King Kong banging on your chest. I don't know what that line means. Um, You can throw your hands up. You can beat the clock. You can move a mountain. You can break rocks. You can be a master. Don't wait for luck. Dedicate yourself, and you're going to find yourself standing in the Hall of Fame. And the world's going to know your name. Because you burn with the brightest flame, and the world's going to know your name. And you'll be on the walls of the Hall of Fame. The irony is, I don't even know the name of the guy who sings this song. <laughs> but you see how this is encouraged. Encouraged. Now, I get the motivational urge, and I'm all for aspiration. But, I'm, but I wonder to what extent does this kind of mentality feed this natural bent in humanity towards this? It's important to try and make a name for yourself. I think we're already very adept at making ourselves the center of attention, don't you? Well that desire of course doesn't pass with age or maturity we might be a little bit more realistic about the dreams and about what can be achieved but our desire to make a name for ourselves that doesn't go away does it that's why we feel crushed when we don't get that recognition for something that we've done that's why we can't stand obscurity or not being liked That's why we're jealous of other people's success. That's why we talk about ourselves all the time, whether we're that horrible kind of blowing your own trumpet type person or the much more discreet person with the humble brag. I just want to say, I saw this on Twitter this week, I just want to say really thank you so much to all those 200,000 followers now on Twitter. I'm so humbled. Sounds like it. It wasn't me, by the way. It's, uh, it's pride, though. It's pride. Making a name for ourselves. Typical to every single one of us. Typical to me. Typical to you. It's all indicative of pride. And it's pride that requires the intervention of God. Post-flood that we have here in Genesis 11. We left off last time... Um, with Noah and his family emerging from the ark. In Genesis 9, humanity's given this fresh start, a recreation, if you like, and then even though we saw the same old, same old patterns of sin, God had promised that he wasn't going to flood the earth again. No, he, instead he had said that he was going to cover the earth, this time with people. To Noah and his family, God left these very super clear instructions in Genesis 9 verse 1, Be fruitful, increase in number. And just the quickest glance at Genesis 10, which we didn't read, we spared Claire from reading Genesis 10, we we find that people did just that. And if you look with me at Genesis 10, verse 32, it tells you what you're looking at as you look at the entire chapter of names. Um, These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the floods. Now, you might have a quick look at at chapter 10 and get to the end of it and read that summary sentence and then say, great, it's actually nice to see a little bit of obedience in Genesis for a while. It's lacking. But Genesis 11 contributes to our understanding of the scattering of the nations that we've got in chapter 10. It wasn't obedience, you see, that resulted in the global spread of humanity. It was pride. It was God's intervention and the confusing of language. You could say God's gentle judgment on mankind's desire to make a name for himself. Note that, of course, Genesis 10 and 11, if you're doing this in your readings at any point, realize that they're not in chronological order. Sometimes you get this in the Bible where you read a passage and it gives this kind of overwhelming summary, like Genesis 1 and then gives you, in the next chapter, it takes you back into the middle of that story and elaborates on a section of it. Uh, That's what's happening here. So Genesis 11 is an elaboration of something that's taken place in Genesis 10 at some point in the middle, around the time of a guy called Nimrod the Hamite and Peleg the Semite. They They existed around about the same time. And this is when all of this happened. So we're going to look at Genesis 11 now and see exactly what took place and why the nations were spread out like this. And the text divides neatly into two, so we're going to take it in two sections this morning, this evening. The first being verses 1 to 4 and the outrageous sin of name-building. If you're taking notes, the outrageous sin of name-building. In verses 1 to 4, we find the people of Babel building a tower, but really, they're building a name for themselves. Uh, What's it like for them back then? Well, verse 1 tells us that there is unity, there is one language and a common speech. I think we downplay or don't quite understand how vital a role language plays in creating culture and identity. So one language and a common speech really is uh, an international dream. It's the UN dream. This one language, this common speech creates unity. Verses 2 and 3 then go on to tell us that we're seeing the same creativity and ingenuity that we saw earlier on in the book as well. It talks about a place called Shinar, which was in the Mesopotamian Valley. It was a really fertile place, but there wasn't much stone around to build with. So in their resourcefulness, these people at the time had developed new construction technology using different materials. So instead of using stone, they figured out that they could harden clay and soil um, and baking it and strengthening it and therefore making bricks like that. And instead of mortar, they decided to use another gluey substance, tar, tar. So this creativity and this technology made them really ambitious to build this city of Babel and most importantly, a tower that reaches up to heaven. Now here's the question you've got to ask there. Why? Why do they want to build a tower like this? It's not like they're building in Manhattan or in London. They're not strapped for space. Uh, Actually, it would have been a vast space space in this Mesopotamian valley. No, they're building it because they want to make a name for themselves. There's something impressive about height, isn't there? Something impressive about stature. I mean, often you see kids standing back to back in the playground and the taller one boasts, oh, I'm taller than you. Or uh, ask any of the kids that come along to the church and say, who's the tallest in your class? And they'll be able to name who it is. But grown-ups do it too, uh, collectively even. I mean, just this past week, the City of London says it is about to, as a city, make a name for itself with a brand new tower called the Tulip. Have you seen this? The Tulip. It won't be the tallest in the world, uh, not actually in London, but it will be phenomenally impressive, they say, drawing the praise, they say, not just of architects, but all who will say, wow. Isn't London amazing? Not as wonderful as Edinburgh, clearly. But this is what's going on in Babel. Uh, this tower that they're trying to build is essentially the first status symbol. Uh, they're trying to say something to the world and make a name for themselves. Now look at verse 4 with me. Listen to the language. Who do these sound like? Come, let us. Where have you heard that before? Well, it sounds very much like the creativity of God that we hear in the early chapters of Genesis, doesn't it? Come, let us make man in our image. So here we go, verse four. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So there's the two reasons. Why are they building the tower? To make a name for themselves and because they're scared of being scattered over the whole earth. And that one verse shows you the two sides of pride. One, the desire for praise. And two, the fear of obscurity. You ever experienced those? One more than the other? Both at the same time? Well, the people of Babel did. They want to make a name for themselves because they love being the center of attention. They didn't want to be scattered, which was God's plan, because they feared that Babel gave them something to boast about, and they might lose that. I mean, you can imagine them on their travels. Hey, where are you from? Aram. Oh, I'm from Babel. Babel? Wow. That's how I imagined it anyway. So it became an identity. Living in Babel gave them kudos in some way. And the prospect of having to spread out and not build something impressive made them worried, made them anxious. I wonder if you experienced those kinds of anxieties. I mean, do you find yourself wanting people to make much of you, to praise you, and say lots of affirming things about you? Do you boast in your city, your education, your social status, social media following, whatever, and find your identity in that thing? Do you fear what you might be without that thing? When you think about questions like that, it's not hard to see that we're all name makers, really. But what I want us to see tonight from this passage is that name making is actually an outrageous affront to God. God has made us not that we find our deepest joy being praised, but in praising him. The glory we seek for ourselves doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him. He alone is worthy of all the praise and all the honor and all the glory. I mean, who of us has anything that he has not already given us? And yet, why do we boast about these things as if they were our own achievements? I mean, are a fast runner in the football team? Yeah, who gave you those legs? Are you doing well at university? Uh, you think it's all down to your study? Who gave you those brain cells? Uh, who gave us our breath? Well, to try and steal glory from God, it's daylight robbery, really. Now, God has made us not that we find our deepest joy in being praised, but in praising Him. And God has made us to live securely with our identity and no one else but Him. And to seek security in life from anyone else but Him is ridiculous. Who else can provide for us what we need? Who else in humanity can save us from our sins? Who else in humanity can we talk to who can really have a considerable impact and give us things that will massively change our lives? Not in the way that God does. It's a ridiculous comparison. No, name-making is such an outrageous affront to God who alone is worthy of our praise that he actively seeks to humble those that rob him of it. It's not a good thing for us to do this. 1 Peter 5 verse 5 tells us God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And Daniel 4, I think, gives us one of the best illustrations of this. I mean, fast forward any number of hundreds of years and we have this city of Babylon. It wasn't smack dab in the right place because actually a river was redirected to flood over this. You can't actually excavate the original Babel, because it's underwater. But Babylon was built a a stone's throw away. And if you go down to the British Museum and read some of the stuff that's on their panels and written in cuneiform, you're going to see these people thought they were the absolute center of the universe. The whole world revolves around us. And it's not hard to see why when you're introduced in Daniel 4 to one of their kings, the ruler of this empire, Nebuchadnezzar, Uh, he is a god in his eyes. One day he's walking on the roof of his palace and he's looking out over the city, a city that he is saying, I've built this. With every brick in that city has his name embossed in it. Nebuchadnezzar. On every brick. And with a deep sense of pride as he looks out over the city, he's like, ah, is this not Babylon of my design All this, paraphrasing, all this is by me and for me. But that's not true. What does he have that God has not given him? This is pride. Blowing his own trumpet like that, robbing God of glory like that. Daniel 4 tells us that before the sound waves even left his lips, a voice came from heaven and Nebuchadnezzar was Humbled, brought low. The God who had given him authority in that empire took it away in an instant. He, he, there he was strutting about on top of this uh, building, this palace of his, looking out over the city. But God made him to live like an animal for over a year, walking on all fours and eating grass like a cow until he did what? Until he looked up to heaven In other words, looked Godward and then praised the Most High. He says, I honored and glorified him who lives forever. So not until he looked to the one who truly deserves glory and not until he gave that glory to the one who truly deserves it did he find himself restored. And restored he was. What did God do with him? Well, he gave grace to the humble. He set him back in his position. And Nebuchadnezzar, by his own words, learned this, that all who walk in pride, he, God, is able to humble. Such a vital lesson for name makers, for name builders like us. Our pride is an affront to God, and he'll not tolerate people who make a name for themselves at the expense of his. So that's what he did with the name builders in Babel way back then. The interesting thing to realize is that he doesn't actually wipe these people out. There's no bloodshed or death here. His intervention is very gracious. You could call it a gentle judgment. And this is point two in verses five to nine, the gracious intervention of God. What does he do? Verse five, God Comes down. God comes down. It's funny that despite man's attempt to build this impressive structure up to the heavens, God still has to actually come down. Have you got a tower? Oh, look. Is that it? Oh, no, that's a mountain. Wait, what's that? Oh, you've got a tower. Like he's supposed to be impressed by this building. It's nuts. That in itself, the fact that God himself looks down, comes down, condescends to humanity is an indication of his greatness. Positionally, he is God most high. Do you ever read that? Why does the Bible talk about God being most high? Well, because it's trying to help us understand in positional terms in our head. There's no one greater, no one higher, no one bigger than our God, Yahweh. No one. Why do you think you're reading the psalm, lift up your heads, O ye gates, that the King of glory may come in. It's because he's too big to get through the doorway to the temple. Forget the doorposts at the top. Let him come in. He's massive. No one bigger. No one greater. He is God most high. And he comes down. Humanity with this tower is on its tiptoes and God is still high and exalted. Then what does he do in verses 6 to 9? He scatters them by removing the thing that united them, their language. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. He scrambles their language so they can't understand. Have you ever been on a holiday and tried to communicate with a local? It's really embarrassing, isn't it? I mean, communication is pretty much reduced to a game of charades Or some kind of slow-mo speech, I'll have that one. So embarrassing, it just doesn't work. But because of this scrambling of the language, the building project, verse 8, grinds to a halt. And God achieves his sovereign purpose just as he said he would. Human pride. You think you can build a fortress and stop God from achieving what he sets out to achieve? He could have gone and it would have been gone. But he demonstrates his might. They spread out over the whole earth, and God, working through this gentle judgment, frustrates the defiance of human hearts and achieves what he said he's going to achieve, the global spread of humanity. Now, I want us to see particularly that this is a real mark of God's grace and mercy here, okay? What does God do here? What is he actually doing? He's not just achieving his purposes and the spread of humanity. He's actually protecting us, protecting humanity, protecting humanity from the full expression or extent of their pride, Because we have to understand, God is not threatened by them in the slightest. He's not up there going, they're building a tower. What if they reach me? He's not thinking those kind of things at all. He's not threatened by human ingenuity and, and, and ambition. He encourages it. But no, he's acting to protect humanity. If this is what they're doing when they're together, then... If they're acting in ways that are utterly defiant of me, they're going to be, they're, they'll be unstoppable in their sinfulness and need to make sure that they're not unstoppable in their sinfulness. Because then their hearts will be extremely hard and then they'll never turn to me and I am their only hope. You see, it was a gracious intervention by God's Human beings certainly, and you understand why. I mean, human beings can certainly do some amazing things. We landed on a meteor, but also incredibly wicked things. Look at what one nation plus a few allies managed to do in the Second World War. Well, imagine what a united humanity with one speech could do if led by the wrong man. God looks down and knows that these Babylonians are on a trajectory, not Godward. There's no collective endeavor to do good, to walk in righteousness, but there's definitely this collective ambition to worship themselves and live in this godless existence, and for anyone in life, the worst possible thing that you can experience is a godless existence. worse than the pain you've felt, the deepest pain. The Bible is honest about it. There's nothing worse than a godless existence that extends forever and ever. They were building up this delusion of self-sufficiency, throwing off this need for God, And in the end, never turn to him and be saved and take them towards eternal hell. And that's what makes this intervention a gracious act of mercy. But that's not all it is, of course. The other side of it is that God protects the honor of his own glorious name in this activity. God who says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. No one can stand back to back with God and compete. So God brings them low. In their pride, God opposes them so that they in humility might turn to him. Now how does this apply to us? What does this passage mean to those who are Christians today? Well, Uh, To use the the phrase of uh, Mr. John Stott here, probably from this book actually, Um, he said, in every area of the Christian life, in every stage of Christian discipleship, pride is your greatest enemy, humility your greatest friend. Pride is your greatest enemy, humility your greatest friend. Now that understanding that then shapes the kind of things that we pursue, are ambitious for, live for, the way we spend our time, etc. So let me ask you these questions. What is your aim in life? What is your ambition? What are you most passionate about? Well, what should it be? It should be the glory of God. Your greatest ambition must be to preserve and to make known the glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You read in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. The mundane things as well as the big things. Do it all for God's glory. Matthew 5, Jesus himself says, let your light so shine among men that they see your good deeds and do what? Give glory. To whom? Your father who is in heaven. Give glory to God most high. Don't let them see your good deeds and say, wow, you're really great. Now you can express gratitude, but think about the way that you do that, even in our church family. And if you're a recipient of praise, or if someone says thanks for something that you've done, an area of service, or whatever, like that, why don't you say glory to God, give Him praise. I mean, He, oh, He gave me these hands, He gave me these gifts. What do I have that I didn't receive from Him? Praise God. It's great. Isn't God is kind in how he works. Rather than just take it and say, yeah, actually, huh, I am pretty impressive. No, give God glory. And what should be your attitude in life? What should be the, the underlying characteristic of every single day, every single moment? Well, you should have the same attitudes as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found. This is God we're talking about. Being found in appearance as a man. He humbled. This is God most high. He humbled himself, By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To what? To the glory of God's The Father, you see where all the praise is going? It's going to him. Our attitude should be like that. Prefer the servant's role. Prefer the lowly things. Don't look down on others. That's what the tulip will let you do in London. You'll be able to look down on all these people that cannot afford to go up the tulip. And you'll feel a great sense of your importance. I can afford to be up here. I have this money. No, be a servant like him. And what that means then is you have a right regard for yourself. So humility is not thinking less of yourself than you should. It usually does mean just thinking less of yourself. But it's thinking of yourself with sober judgment with a right estimation of yourself. Whenever I'm thinking about humility and the right estimation of yourself, I often think of car tires. Uh, Tires are designed to work with the right amount of air in them, I'm led to believe. Uh, Too much air is dangerous, and not enough air is dangerous. And the same goes for us. So if you have an overinflated sense of your own importance, you're going to have a blowout at some point. You'll be so puffed up, you're vulnerable to puncture. All it takes is one criticism, one failure, one meeting with someone who's better than you at something, and pop, that's you. You're gutted. Life falls apart. But the same goes for those who have an underinflated view of themselves. It's also a funny form of pride, that actually. But you could be too hard on yourself. And what happens is you just end up wearing out easily and you veer off course easily as underinflated tires do. But the very measured and straightforward advice and counsel and teaching that the Bible offers us in Romans 12 is, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, that is pride, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. View yourself as God views you. A child of his, endowed with graces and gifts and abilities. Don't belittle yourself so much that you're robbing God of that gift of grace. And serve him with the humility of Jesus Christ. Let it be in your character. Let it be in your heart. Serve one another in love. Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Maybe you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. I really want you to understand how the Bible is so clear about how all these warnings about sinful self-sufficiency, this pride really is an affront. All the things that we take credit for, well, well all the while ignoring the God who exists and the gifts he has given us is pride. And the Bible is super clear and it's, It's got some really straight warnings in it. One of them would be from Proverbs, which says, Pride comes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. That's a very honest presentation of what pride is and what it brings. Yet, though pride is a major sin in each of us and really at the root of lots of other sins that we commit. It can be forgiven. It can be washed clean. I just read to you from Philippians 2, Jesus Christ who though he was in the form of God didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing being found in likeness as a man in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's where he paid the price for all of our pride. So that proud people like me and proud people like the members of this church family could approach him and say, I'm a sinner, I'm sorry for robbing you of your glory. I'm sorry for having this overinflated sense of my own self-importance. Please forgive me. Jesus died for proud people. And when we turn away from our sin and trust in his blood, those sins are washed away. His forgiveness is that wonderful. And it's all possible because God most high humbled himself by becoming a man and stooped as low as he could. He left heaven, became a man. And he left behind not just the majesty of heaven, but even as a man, he left behind his friends, he left behind his dignity, that he might go right to a cross and suffer shame of shame in our place. The humble substituted himself for the proud. And because of that, he was rightly exalted. So my encouragement for you tonight, if you're not a Christian, humble yourselves before the Lord, the Lord, says James, and he will lift you up. Let's bow our heads and take a moment or two just to reflect on pride. Pride.